With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today on the AgNet News Hour. Coming up later, there's a new herbicide option for rice growers this year, and the Administrative Committee for Pistachios welcomes a new director. But we start today with Brian German. In this week's California Chill Hour report brought to you by Dormex. Wake up your buds with Dormex. This week, we're starting a series with Masood Kesri, research director at the Mari Agricultural Research Institute, who's been looking at dormancy-breaking materials like Dormex and how they work in pistachio orchards. Masood shared what issues there are with pistachios and how dormancy-breaking materials can help address them and what they've seen in the first year of a multi-year research project looking at how growers might benefit from Dormex. Most important factors to improve the yield with pistachio trees actually is the bloom synchronization between male and female trees. The bloom synchronization of the new varieties like Goldenies and Lossils is not an issue. However, this issue is the case for Kerman and Peters. Kerman as female variety and Peters as male variety. And the issue is that since the winter chill requirement for the male Peters is higher than female Kerman, in marginal and low winter chill years or location, there is a kind of a bloom asynchrony between male and female trees. And I can say female trees blooms are more advanced than male trees. On the other hand, male tree remain partially dormant or delay bloom. So the female trees uh, do not receive enough pollen in the main period of flowering time, and that can cause yield reduction. And to meet this issue, actually, there are some breast-breaking agents, most recently Dormex. The material's been used around the world in a variety of crops for years, but Dormex was just registered for pistachios two years ago in California. And how has this new tool for synchronizing bloom been adopted by growers so far? Pistachio growers in California have yet to apply this product at commercial scale. So they have numerous questions regarding the effectiveness and advantages of winter dormex spray on pistachio trees in the Central Valley. Actually, we have had also the same question. Therefore, we started a replicated research trial in Tulare County near Ducor area in 2022. And 2022 in this area was not a high chill year. It was a marginal chill year. So we used Dormex at CP55 and CP65. DP means chill portion. And in the other location, which was a low chill location, we applied Dormex at CP60. From the calendar date, I can say CP55 was early February and CP65 was on February 24th. The results showed that early application of Dormex was uh, early February caused severe bloom asynchrony between male and female flowers. Application of Dormex very early advanced the female flowers but did not impact the male flowers. And this asynchrony caused significant lower yield and higher blank percentage. On the other side, application of Dormex at CP65, which was around February 24th, significantly increased the yield, and this increase was even higher in the low chill location. So from the 2022 research trial, we found out that timing is very critical for application of Dormex. Masood will be joining us again next week to get more into the research results of how Dormex impacted pistachio yields in the first year of the trial. 
And information from the UC Davis Chill Calculator shows that as of January 23rd, the Shafter Simis station has logged 43.1 portions under the dynamic model, with 663 hours below 45 degrees. The station in five points has registered 44.1 portions with 646 hours. There have been 795 hours in Merced with 45.3 cumulative portions. In Manteca, there have been 620 chill hours equating to 47 portions. Finally, the Simis station in Durham has registered 51.3 portions with 744 hours. And this has been the California Chill Hour Report brought to you by Dormex. Tune in again next week for another episode. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. In today's National Spotlight, the American Farm Bureau Federation set policy direction for the year at the final event of the 105th consecutive American Farm Bureau Convention held this year in Salt Lake City, Utah. Michael Clements shares what's important for farmers this year. Farm Bureau's annual convention concluded Tuesday with a session on policy priorities for 2024. American Farm Bureau Federation President Zippy Duvall says the Farm Bill is the top issue. We stress the importance of getting a new Farm Bill done and how urgent it is to get it done now. Labor was another hot topic, especially around stabilizing the wage rate and ensuring that we can make progress on year-round labor workers. Another takeaway was the artificial intelligence and the need to seize the opportunities related to AI while ensuring that farmers' data is protected. A fourth takeaway relates to contract poultry growers. Our delegates called for a fair pay structure and more transparency among poultry companies. Duvall says the policies begin at the grassroots county level. Then they rise up to the state level at their state conventions where they're discussed, and then it moves on to the national level where we finish that debate at our national convention. This year we had 350 farmers and ranchers delegates from all across the country. And I want to also share an important point. We surveyed them, and 99% of them are family farms, and two-thirds of them come from small to medium-sized farm, and that's based on USDA classifications. We really do represent a diverse agriculture in America. More than 80 speakers and 4,500 registered attendees were at the event this year. We had a great convention here in Salt Lake City. The energy level was high among our attendees, and they are very optimistic about the future and taking on new frontiers. We're all looking forward to getting together again next year in San Antonio, Texas. We invite every listener to join us. We want them to mark their calendars now for January 24th through January 29th for the AFEF convention. Learn more at FB.org. Michael Clements, Salt Lake City. A wintertime monthly report issued by USDA fills in the gaps regarding state information on various crops and field conditions. Rod Bain reports. A unique period in USDA's crop progress reporting takes place in the winter months, December through March. State stories focused on specific winter crops and commodities. Until about 10 years ago, we did have weekly reports from each of the individual states. But at that time, USDA NAS opted to shut down the weekly state reports, and they were replaced with a more comprehensive crop progress report that includes parameters such as topsoil moisture, subsoil moisture, days suitable for field work, and rangeland and pasture condition. 
USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says state stories are monthly updates from states that do report over the winter to the National Agricultural Statistics Service. And that gives us a little bit of a glimpse into what's going on. And I think most of the intelligence we can derive from these monthly reports that start at the end of December and also come at the end of January and February and March, we get a little look at winter wheat condition and some of the progress for winter wheat. We also get a glimpse, at least for some of the states, rangeland and pasture conditions. And then finally, we get also a little peek at topsoil and subsoil moisture conditions. So among the news of note from the inaugural winter of 2023-24 State Stories report for the period ending in late December. Winter wheat conditions have generally improved across some of the real key hard red winter wheat production areas of the central and southern Great Plains. And we've also seen an erosion of the favorable conditions that we saw earlier across the lower Midwest due to drought conditions. For pasture and rangeland conditions from reporting states. We've seen some drying conditions in the western U.S., a lack of storminess in several states, pretty much everywhere but along the west coast, leading to some deterioration in pasture conditions. As for topsoil moisture condition ratings by state. Of states currently reporting topsoil moisture at least 40% very short to short. States in the southwest, parts of the Great Plains, also several states in the southeast. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. That's today's National Spotlight. Now here's Will Jordan with the Livestock Report. In today's Livestock News, until now, the only cost-effective way to have cattle graded on the rail was by selling to large packing plants. The USDA's recent feasibility study on remote beef grading has opened the door for the rollout of a pilot program. This will give beef farmers and ranchers the opportunity to have locally slaughtered cattle receive quality grades, providing new marketing opportunities. USDA's Rod Bain has more. It is a familiar symbol to consumers at the meat counter of grocery stores and retail centers. USDA grade marks are used to communicate quality of products. In this particular case, we're talking about beef. You go to the grocery store, you see USDA Prime, USDA Choice. That is an indicator of what sort of eating experience that you should expect from that product. That nomenclature is used broadly, not just domestically, but overseas to communicate that up and down the value chain. Yet as Jennifer Porter of USDA's Agricultural Marketing Service points out, What many customers may not realize is... This is a user fee service, so it is paid for by those facilities. Unlike federal inspection carried out by the Food Safety Inspection Service, grading is not required. So those graders that are there in those facilities, that service is paid for by the plant. So larger packing plants and processing facilities have economies of scale working for them to utilize this grading service. For smaller sized operations, there are challenges to bringing a grader on board. Because it's a user fee driven program, they also have to charge fees for smaller plants when they request grading service. In many cases, that's not on a regular eight hour a day cadence. That's much more as the need arrives in an ad hoc manner. That is very often cost prohibitive for those operations. That is where a new USDA pilot program comes in tested at about 20 packing facilities in 2023 as part of a feasibility study before piloting 
Grading is done remotely. Once the plant is ready to actually do some grading, what they do is capture video and photos and transmit those to us. And a USDA grader has been evaluating them remotely. Plants using remote grading pay only for the time spent by the USDA grader, several minutes, versus an eight-hour shift on site. This would in turn provide cost savings for participating packers while assuring quality for their products and opportunity to use the USDA grade on their meats as a value-added opportunity. Porter says AMS will study and monitor during the pilot program. How does this look for facilities that maybe operate at different scale? Are the technical components relevant? Are there ways that we can improve the oversight component to make sure that the integrity of the grade mark is still intact? Because that remains a paramount focus for us. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. I'm Will Jordan for Agnet West. Keep feeding the world. California rice farmers have a new herbicide option this year. Rice Farm Advisor Whitney Brim DeForest provided some insight on the newly registered cliffhanger herbicide. The uh, new product that we've got is actually already available in rice in the south. So this is a new to California product for us. And we actually already have another formulation of this product. So we have a granular formulation currently, Butte. And then the uh, cliffhanger product is going to be a foliar applied post-emergence herbicide later in the season. So just a new product for us to kind of take care of some of our weed species with in a bit of a different way. And it gives good control of sedges and broadleaves and then provides a little bit of control on the grasses as well. And it's applied a little bit later in the season with this new application method. So, yeah, just giving us some, a little bit more flexibility than we've had a little bit later in the season. The Administrative Committee for Pistachios will be coming under new leadership. Stephen Vasquez talked about the process for taking over as the new executive director of the ACP. Currently working with Bob Klein, who I'm going to be replacing, and he's currently mentoring me. So we have quite the feat in the next two and a half, three months to cram his 25 years of uh, expertise into uh, a short amount of time. So I'm spending a fair amount of time basically shadowing him understanding what uh, the organization does. Uh, Actually, two organizations, because underneath Administrative Committee for Pistachios is the California Pistachio Research Board. And so that's a part of my, that'll be a part of my responsibilities to understand uh, the type of research that's being done, uh, who the researchers are, and uh, what the needs are for the industry. The Organic Trade Association has secured over a million dollars in funding from the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Market Access Program to promote American organic products globally in 2024. The funding includes more than $760,000 in new map allocations and nearly $286,000 in unused carryover funds from 2022. OTA aims to expand activities to untapped markets worldwide with the USDA funding. Emphasizing the growing global demand for organic products, OTA co-CEO Tom Chapman highlights the economic benefits, job creation, and opportunities for U.S. farmers through exports. USDA statistics reveal a nearly 20% increase in U.S. organic exports over the last five years, with Canada and Mexico as primary destinations and emerging markets in Asia, the Middle East, and Vietnam entering the top 10. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. 
In today's National Spotlight, the American Farm Bureau Federation set policy direction for the year at the final event of the 105th consecutive American Farm Bureau Convention held this year in Salt Lake City, Utah. Michael Clements shares what's important for farmers this year. Farm Bureau's annual convention concluded Tuesday with a session on policy priorities for 2024. American Farm Bureau Federation President Zippy Duvall says the farm bill is the top issue. We stress the importance of getting a new farm bill done and how urgent it is to get it done now. Labor was another hot topic, especially around stabilizing the wage rate and ensuring that we can make progress on year-round labor workers. Another takeaway was the artificial intelligence and the need to seize the opportunities related to AI while ensuring that farmers' data is protected. A fourth takeaway relates to contract poultry growers. Our delegates called for a fair pay structure and more transparency among poultry companies. Duvall says the policies begin at the grassroots county level. Then they rise up to the state level at their state conventions where they're discussed, and then it moves on to the national level where we finish that debate at our national convention. This year we had 350 farmers and rancher delegates from all across the country. And I want to also share an important point. We surveyed them, and 99% of them are family farms, and two-thirds of them come from small to medium-sized farm, and that's based on USDA classifications. We really do represent a diverse agriculture in America. More than 80 speakers and 4,500 registered attendees were at the event this year. We had a great convention here in Salt Lake City. The energy level was high among our attendees, and they are very optimistic about the future and taking on new frontiers. We're all looking forward to getting together again next year in San Antonio, Texas. We invite every listener to join us. We want them to mark their calendars now for January 24th through January 29th for the AFEF convention. Learn more at FB.org. Michael Clements, Salt Lake City. A wintertime monthly report issued by USDA fills in the gaps regarding state information on various crops and field conditions. Rod Bain reports. A unique period in USDA's crop progress reporting takes place in the winter months, December through March. State stories focused on specific winter crops and commodities. Until about 10 years ago, we did have weekly reports from each of the individual states. But at that time, USDA NAS opted to shut down the weekly state reports, and they were replaced with a more comprehensive crop progress report that includes parameters such as topsoil moisture, subsoil moisture, days suitable for field work, and rangeland and pasture condition. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says state stories are monthly updates from states that do report over the winter to the National Agricultural Statistics Service. And that gives us a little bit of a glimpse into what's going on. And I think most of the intelligence we can derive from these monthly reports that start at the end of December and also come at the end of January and February and March, we get a little look at winter wheat condition and some of the progress for winter wheat. We also get a glimpse, at least for some of the states, rangeland and pasture conditions. And then finally, we get also a little peek at topsoil and subsoil moisture conditions. So among the news of note from the inaugural winter of 2023-24 State Stories Report, for the period ending in late December. Winter wheat conditions have generally improved across some of the real key hard red winter wheat production areas of the central and southern Great Plains. And we've also seen an erosion of the favorable conditions that we saw earlier across the lower Midwest due to drought conditions. 
for pasture and rangeland conditions from reporting states. We have seen some drying conditions in the western U.S., a lack of storminess in several states, pretty much everywhere but along the west coast, leading to some deterioration in pasture conditions. As for topsoil moisture condition ratings by state. Of states currently reporting topsoil moisture at least 40 percent very short to short. States in the southwest, parts of the Great Plains, also several states in the southeast. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. That's today's National Spotlight. Now here's Will Jordan with the Livestock Report. In today's Livestock News, until now, the only cost-effective way to have cattle graded on the rail was by selling to large packing plants. The USDA's recent feasibility study on remote beef grading has opened the door for the rollout of a pilot program. This will give beef farmers and ranchers the opportunity to have locally slaughtered cattle receive quality grades, providing new marketing opportunities. USDA's Rod Bain has more. It is a familiar symbol to consumers at the meat counter of grocery stores and retail centers. USDA grade marks are used to communicate quality of products. In this particular case, we're talking about beef. You go to the grocery store, you see USDA Prime, USDA Choice. That is an indicator of what sort of eating experience that you should expect from that product. That nomenclature is used broadly, not just domestically, but overseas to communicate that up and down the value chain. Yet as Jennifer Porter of USDA's Agricultural Marketing Service points out, What many customers may not realize is... This is a user fee service, so it is paid for by those facilities. Unlike federal inspection carried out by the Food Safety Inspection Service, grading is not required. So those graders that are there in those facilities, that service is paid for by the plant. So larger packing plants and processing facilities have economies of scale working for them to utilize this grading service. For smaller sized operations, there are challenges to bringing a grader on board. Because it's a user fee driven program, they also have to charge fees for smaller plants when they request grading service. In many cases, that's not on a regular eight hour a day cadence, that's much more as the need arrives in an ad hoc manner. That is very often cost prohibitive for those operations. That is where a new USDA pilot program comes in tested at about 20 packing facilities in 2023 as part of a feasibility study before piloting, grading is done remotely. Once the plant is ready to actually do some grading, what they do is capture video and photos and transmit those to us. And a USDA grader has been evaluating them remotely. Plants using remote grading pay only for the time spent by the USDA grader, several minutes versus an eight-hour shift on-site. This would in turn provide cost savings for participating packers while assuring quality for their products and opportunity to use the USDA grade on their meats as a value-added opportunity. Porter says AMS will study and monitor during the pilot program. How does this look for facilities that maybe operate at different scale? Are the technical components relevant? Are there ways that we can improve the oversight component to make sure that the integrity of the grade mark is still intact? Because that remains a paramount focus for us. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. I'm Will Jordan for Agnet West. Keep feeding the world. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news.
Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. For today's featured interview, we go back to the American Farm Bureau annual convention held this week in Salt Lake City, Utah. Randy Crone, and president of Indiana Farm Bureau and a farmer in the southwest part of Indiana. So there are a lot of issues that you're facing as president of the Indiana Farm Bureau. And um, we, we had talked off mic about a few of them. Let's start off with water because water is an issue that um, after living in California for a lot of years, I won't say how many, um, I know a lot about water issues. So let's start there. What's going on with water in Indiana? Well, it's a little surprising. If you'd asked me a few years ago, I never thought we'd have a water quantity discussion in Indiana because we generally have abundant water. But uh, an economic development area just north of Indianapolis, uh, the state is trying to build and with no water there. So they're trying to pipe water about 40 miles to the tune of 100 million gallons a day out of an area around, well, right around Purdue or Lafayette area. And so that has put this on everybody's radar screen where they're wanting to put their pumps to pipe it. Uh, there is a lot of farm irrigation around there. Uh, our members around that area are really concerned. And really, Indiana doesn't have much policy on water quantity. So we're worried about what happens. We have protections for residential wells, but past that, uh, you know, our legal counsel says it's basically biggest straw wins. And so now we put together a task force. We're trying to figure out what rules you know, I, I hesitate to say the word regulation because in Farm Bureau we try to fight regulation and not, uh, but we got to have some rules around this because I don't want to wait till we have a crisis. It might be five or 10 or 20 years, but we need to figure out where agriculture is on the priority list and, and uh, does manufacturing and can they move it from one watershed to another and who has that right to do that? Is it home, we're a home rule state, so is it the local counties? Can the state do it? Who owns it? So there, we have a dozen, no, several dozen questions and we're trying to sort this out, but it's gonna be a big issue and we gotta get it right because it will have precedent around the state future, you know, future development areas because there are a number of areas that do not have underground water aquifers. So we're, we're working on it. We're kind of at the beginning stages trying to figure this one out, but uh, it's going to be important to our members. Yeah, this, I, I have a lot of questions about this, but um, you said that they're, they're currently is not a good protection system for agriculture and there's now there you said there are for homeowners right but uh not for agriculture so it hasn't really has it not been necessarily an issue for agriculture in the past and it's becoming a newer issue it, it hasn't been an issue really in indiana because you just don't think of water quantity issues in indiana and you know we're blessed with a lot of rainfall we've got several good aquifers several good rivers uh that have helped us but there are areas uh, that don't have aquifers underneath them and the state or our economic development corp decided to develop one of these areas and there's no water they're trying to attract a business that is a, will be a high capacity water user and they're talking to the tune of 100 million gallons a day so that's a fair amount of water they're talking about building two 48 inch water pipelines 
uh, to pipe it there. So we're, we are concerned and we've not had these issues. So we've actually reached out to Arizona Farm Bureau and some others and trying to learn from them and what kind of rules do we need because I, I don't want to wait till the crisis hits and then we're trying to make the rules. Never good to make decisions in the middle of a crisis and I hope we never get there. Maybe we never need the rules, but I'd like to have them in place so we have protections for agriculture. Yeah, in Arizona, it seems would be a good a good Farm Bureau to contact because they've had issues with water movement and making sure, or, you know, getting water to the different areas that it needs to be for agriculture. Um, so do you think that you'll possibly, is it possible that one day Indiana will be looking at something like that? Uh, it's hard to speculate right now, but probably, I mean, because the issue is some places have uh, abundant water and they've located this facility where there is not really hardly any water and then manufacturer needs it so they are moving water between watersheds the other thing that's come on our radar screen what happens with the discharge where does that go and how is it managed and you know if you're dumping it in there's very small streams there so if they're dumping it in that you could actually be flooding some of the farmland uh, because of the discharge so a uh, lot of questions we're we're just at the beginning of this and trying to sort it out but we know it's a high priority and we've got to get it done our legislature has said they're not going to uh, do anything on the water issue this year we're in a short session but next year we're going to we want to have our ducks in a row and make sure that we come with some proposals yeah, good deal. Um, let's talk a little bit about labor, if we can, because I know that you do have some labor-intensive crops in Indiana, uh, and there are a, a lot of different issues with labor going on. Uh, but let's talk about first um, uh, the, the wage, the, the adverse wage rate. Um, tell me a little bit about your thoughts on that, the position of Indiana Farm Bureau. Yeah, we have a number of members uh, scattered all over the state growing anywhere from tomatoes to watermelons, sweet corn, uh, cantaloupes, and uh, you know most of those are, are harvested and planted by H-2A workers. And the last two years, our members have been, they call almost weekly because last two years their wage rate's gone up uh, 20%. So huge increase, and if you've got a number of them. Also, it's around the new rules about what rage, wage rate they are at, whether they're a laborer or a truck driver. And if you drive a truck a mile down the road, you switch from one category to the other, but then it's a $10 an hour increase, but it's for everybody on that contract. So if you've got 20 people on that contract, they all get the higher wage. So our members are really concerned. Uh, also, Indiana, it just happens that the Ohio River is a change in the territories or the regions of how they uh, uh, determine the wages. So when you cross the Ohio River into Kentucky and on down into uh, Tennessee, Georgia, where there's a lot of melons growing, they're roughly a shy $4 an hour cheaper. And our members are telling us that's hard to compete on a labor because you're labor intensive there. And so they're upset, they're wanting some relief. You know, Farm Bureau, we've talked about trying to pass legislation to roll back to the pre-23 wage rates and try to sort out. But uh, I'm sure on our delegate floor tomorrow, there's gonna be a lot of discussion about labor because it's a huge concern. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, for for listeners, um, 
I, you know, I, I like to just point out that since we're on the radio, we have a lot of farmer listeners, but we also have a lot of listeners who are not farmers. And for listeners who may be hearing this thinking, oh, they just don't want to pay a fair wage for their workers, um, what kind of wages are workers currently getting and what are we looking at? Yeah, our melon growers are telling me the wage rate is set at eighteen eighteen in Indiana. But you also have to furnish housing, you have to furnish transportation, and there's a few other things. And so they're telling me uh, at the end of the day, they're coming in at about the $26, maybe $27 per hour wage rate. And so that's pretty, you know, to me, that's on the high side for the labor side of things. So they, they're concerned, and it just makes their products a whole lot more expensive and when you're competing with others that are paying roughly four dollars an hour less if you're trying to get contracts at walmart or kroger or may the major grocery stores you can't compete so it makes them really frustrated on what's going on right and uh you know i've done a few other interviews on the um adverse wage uh, rate and uh how that whole system was set up many many i mean 40 years ago um there has and there's not been a good update to it since so we're really working with antiquated rules right absolutely we are and some of it might fall back on the farmers because i don't think some of them understand when you have the reporting of what wages you're paying for other farm labor and stuff and i'm not sure they understand what they're doing and what they're turning in and that has an impact on it too but it is a very antiquated outdated system while we are on the topic of labor, can we talk about H-2A a little bit? And um, aside from the wages, what other improvements need to be made to that system? Because I know that there are, uh, you know, just failings within it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things. It, it You said earlier it needs to be updated, but part of the impact is the classification of the jobs. And if they do one job for just a few minutes, they change to that uh, the whole time and not just for a few minutes uh, or maybe a day and so there's a lot of things like that there needs to be more availability make it easier I a lot of the workers that come to the farms that I'm familiar with are the same ones year after year they have to go through the same process it would be nice if they've been here a few years to be able to streamline the process to get them here and, you know, and it's like that in most of the states, uh, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm originally from California and we would have the same same people coming in year after year into the different crops. And um, it's a, quite a process that they have to go through every year. And that can make it very difficult for farmers to get, you know, to get the labor they need. Now, let me ask you, there have been many, many times um, in California where crops have just been left to rot because they're they could not get all of the help that's needed. Has Indiana ever seen a problem like that? I've had calls about that. They've struggled on getting workers, and some of them got tied up on being released coming up. And uh, thankfully, our congressmen and women have been very helpful. Uh, now, if they've been shorthanded, yeah, probably some things didn't get done that needed to be done. Uh, not as bad as in California what happened, but uh, we're on the verge of that anyway. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be right back. You are listening to the Agnet News Hour, and now for more news. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey discusses concerns with snowpack accumulations for this western water season. 
western snowpack will probably not accumulate except at the highest elevations. That is an ongoing concern because for the most part so far in the 2023-24 winter wet season, we have seen subpar snowpack accumulations. That is especially true in the northern Rockies and parts of the southwest. Now we could see some slight improvement at higher elevations with this stormy regime this week. So as we move into the end of January and on into the early part of February, we're getting well past the halfway mark on the winter wet season for the western U.S. And we do have increasing concerns that we may have subpar snowpacks by the time we get to the peak snowpack date, which is typically on or near April 1st. So just something to keep an eye on in the west in spite of the stormier pattern that we do lack snowpack in both northern and southern reaches of the western U.S. That's today's top agriculture news. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halverson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. AgNet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.